Blog Talk Radio. You boys got to hold on because I'm going to have to stand on it. I'm Tim with Spain, alongside of the gentleman that owes Larry the Cable Guy $30 from SpeedwayDigest.com, Mr. Stephen Wilson. Stephen, how you doing tonight, boy? Well, all i got to say is that that $30 that he wants from me, uh, I found a few pennies in my couch cushion that I'll send to him one at a time. That's... <laughs> I... To some of the people that might not have heard the uh, our show that we did Saturday, which I want to thank you again for handling everything while I was on the grounds there trying to get interviews from everybody. And Larry, the cable guy, I got to interview him Saturday there at Atlanta Motor Speedway. And uh, I was telling the listeners live about, you know, what we all had going on with you, man, in the studio up there just right outside of Richmond and Stephen Wilson. And Larry, the cable guy, said, I know that feller. He owes me $30. I thought, oh. I was laughing so hard. I didn't. I didn't know if I, I didn't know if I could go any further, Steve. <laughs> yeah, he's a funny guy. I'm glad that you know they've got people coming out like that to the races because you know they it it, it brings a new atmosphere to the race and you know it, it it's comical you know that somebody like that can be there. I mean, after all the jokes that he's made in his lifetime, and you know it's really good. I I like it. So you know he's funny and it's all in good fun. Yeah, and his PR lady, she was super. I can't remember her name. I apologize, but yeah, she. Uh, I asked her, could I get an interview? Could I get Larry the Cable Guy on the live? You know that we're doing a live broadcast. She said, yes, sir. Hold on one second, and she went slap through a big crowd of people and grabbed him and brought him right to us. So I want to thank her. I want to thank Larry the Cable Guy, and also I've done it. I think I said it over the weekend. I want to thank uh, Ed Clark, their president of Atlanta Motor Speedway, and Michael Lillard for taking care of us. 
while we were there this past weekend, and we dodged the rain and all that. But the number to call in is 215-383-3681. I'm Tim Spain, alongside of SpeedwayDigest.com's Mr. Stephen Wilson. Reverend Joe uh, cannot make it tonight, so he uh, he sent me a prayer. So I'm gonna go ahead and uh, I'm gonna go ahead and say a say a little quick prayer, and we'll get everything going. Dear Lord, we come before you and thank you for your protection over this last week. Please watch over all of us in all we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Jesus' name, Amen. Thank God for Reverend Joe making it short and sweet. Stephen, we got uh, coming up here at a quarter after the hour. We've got uh, owner of uh, Means Racing Fifty Two, Mr. Jimmy Means. Uh, I want to thank him before he even comes on for taking time out to come on. And real quick, Stephen, if you want to go talk, you want to talk a little bit about the Foes of Honor Quick Trip Five Hundred Weekend. Kevin Harvick dominated, and like I said just a few minutes or just a few seconds ago, the weather people told us a lie about the rain. But I mean, it, overall, it was a it was a real nice weekend there at, at Atlanta. I wish more fans would have come out and not listened to the weather forecast because they flat missed that one, Steve. You know, yeah, I mean, sure, we had to, you know, wait around a little bit to get this thing going. It was originally scheduled to go off at 2 o'clock. NASCAR and everybody over there finally said, okay, we've got to move this thing up. We need to get up to 1 o'clock. Um, yeah, and, I mean, you just um, – you go through all of that with NASCAR, and they did everything that they had to do and could do to you know make sure that this thing really went off, went off on time. And uh, you know, unfortunately, the rain did plague it just but a little bit. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, I know a lot of people were probably out there thinking we would only get to about a lap 170 or something like that, which was the end of stage two, which would make it an official race out there for us. And uh, I'm sure a lot of teams were looking that way. I'm sure NASCAR was looking at that. The fans were looking at that. The track was looking at that. Many people all together were looking at that. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we were able to get in all 325 laps. So, I mean, that's just really just a testament to, you know, the teams, NASCAR, uh, the track, everybody that's all involved to to make this thing go on and go on the way that it should go. And also, Stephen, we talked a little bit about it. Saturday, I think uh, Mike Bagley from MRN, we uh, talked with him, and we, you know, like he said, uh, it's not a, a matter of if, it's a matter of when they pave Atlanta Motor Speedway. And also, we spoke with Matt Humphrey from NASCAR there, and he said that he had made a couple laps around the track, I think right before we had went live from over there, and said that the weepers were not as bad as they actually thought they were going to be. So with all that being said and done and with the uh, Foes of Honor Quick Trip 500 behind us now, do you think we can still see a repave or do you think the drivers is going to win out over NASCAR and Atlanta Motor Speedway and saying that they want to leave it like it is? Because like I said, it didn't take them that long to, to get that track dry and the weepers were not as bad as Matt said they thought they were going to be. Well, I mean, there's two things here. That last year they tried to do this repave and the repave, um, you know, they drivers came together and just said, no, I don't want to repave out there. Um, you know, this is the 22nd year that this asphalt has been laid down out there. I mean, it's very, very rough. And the aggregate is starting to poke through the surface. It tears tires up. But, you know, we, we've heard a lot of drivers right after the race say, you know, this track still has a lot of character, you know, and we did not get the, uh, uh, you know, the weepers, like, you know, a lot of people were expecting with this old race surface. So, you know, I'm sure that, you know, everybody's, again, probably sitting around trying to figure out what the best course of action is for this surface out there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of smarter engineers than I am, and I'm not going to profess to be an engineer by any <laughs> means. I know just a little bit here and a little bit there about the, the, the types of surfaces that they lay down, the polymer, the non-polymer, the, you know, going with a more um, sandy type mix like they do at Darlington or, you know, places like that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways that this surface can be put down. But I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the surface held up. It did what did its job, and I think those conversations will be ongoing. And, Stephen, during the uh, NASCAR Xfinity Series race Saturday, I had emailed you some uh, pictures. So, uh a lot of a lot of people at Goodyear were sort of worried about how the tire wear was going to be if we had long green flag runs. And uh, I know I sent you a picture of the right front off of uh, the number 21 of uh, Daniel Hemrick. Uh, looked like he had a split and he was and he was cording. And 
just to sort of let our fans know, uh, Goodyear and NASCAR had got together, and they made the inside of that right front tire a little bit harder compound to compensate for that rough surface there at Atlanta Motor Speedway. And it done its job on some cars that I had walked down through there looking at the tires that come off of them, like uh, B.J. McLeod's uh, car, uh, there was a bunch of them that the right front come come off, and it, it looked fine. Do you think some of the teams might have been running a little bit more aggressive camera than what Goodyear and NASCAR had told them that they should run there? Well, I mean, that's almost an every weekend thing that we see, you know, multiple issues with uh, different tires that could potentially be due to camber or, you know, low tire pressures, you know, other, underneath what, you know, they, Goodyear themselves and the engineers said that they need to be running at a minimum. Uh, you know, these things do anything and everything that they can do to, to, to work uh, these tires and the equipment to the best of their ability. And, you know, yeah, I mean, we did see some, we saw some varying issues out there in the Xfinity Series race. We saw it in the truck race. We saw tires going down. And, uh, you know, that I think that's, you know, kind of a product of what we see there with that asphalt. The aggregate, again, is, you know, starting to come through. And for what people don't know what I'm talking about, the aggregate is the rock and the mixture that they put in with the asphalt to, to bind this together to give it strength. And, uh, you know, those rock, that aggregate rock, and, you know, some of the other bonding mechanisms that they use in the surfaces, on these surfaces, you know, that's what tears tires up. And uh, you get a lot of load pressure on those front tires, especially that, that, that front tire that we continue to see go down. We also saw some rear tires go down, but, you know, some of that is a product of racing and some of that is a product of, you know, some of these cars getting into one another and eventually going down. But, you know, it's expedited by the fact that this surface is just so rough. Yeah, and uh, a couple of the drivers, too, Stephen, that that you and I spoke with there at Atlanta Motor Speedway, I know Gray Galden and I think B.J. McLeod might have mentioned it also, The uh, that bump and turn and turn too. He said you could you could tell that the bump is getting a little bit more bumpy than what it used to be as far as getting the age on the track and all that. But they were saying when they come across that bump, you know, that right there, you know, when it lifts and it puts pressure back down, especially on the right front going in them corners there because they're, they're flat getting it around that mile and a half racetrack at 184 miles an hour. Of course, that is on sticker tires, and you run about five laps, and you've probably dropped five or six miles an hour, Steve. Yeah, I mean, it was really only taking anywhere from five to eight laps for most of these tires to start wearing down by a second. And, you know, for every five laps that they went beyond that, uh, you know, five to eight laps beyond that, that was another second off the car. That was another second off the car. By the end of a whole tire cycle out there, you know, there were four and a half seconds off uh, a thicker set of tires. And, I mean, you could really tell the difference when a car would come in off sequence. Denny Hamlin tried to do this multiple times. Uh, and they had cars coming in around him, and they were making up three seconds a lap on him um, nearly. And, you know, Kevin Harvick was able to do this multiple times. But, uh, you know, you kind of saw a lot of that with the tires, and I think you continue to see that with the tires out there as long as this payment stays the way that it is. And also, just, Stephen, I want to touch a little bit about what I think you had talked about on one of our shows, either Saturday or uh, Sunday, as far as the date for Atlanta Motor Speedway. And you might have mentioned it last Tuesday night. I think you mentioned maybe moving the Atlanta date from the second race right after Daytona to maybe coming back after they go to the West Coast Swing and do that out there and then come back to Atlanta, Stephen, and sort of let our listeners know a little bit about why we think NASCAR and Atlanta most probably might need to do that as far as one thing is the weather. Well, I think that's the biggest thing is that when you look at the last two, couple, three years or something like that, um, it's been consistently plagued by weather, whether it be very, very cold out there, whether it be rain, whether it be rain and cold all together. You know, in February in Georgia just, you know, unfortunately has that weather cycle that 
you're getting into, and we've seen it the last couple, three years or something like that, ever since we we moved this race. And this is like, you know, this race has been moved multiple times. Since it's been on circuit, I mean, this is Atlanta used to be the last race of the year we used to go to. We used to race on Labor Day. We used to race all kinds of dates at Atlanta twice a year. And, you know, I think it's just come to a point where, you know, just leaving out of Daytona and going into, into you know, Atlanta, I think is, you know, starting to hurt them in some regards. And it's starting to hurt them in the ticket sales. It's starting to hurt them in other regards, too. Um, and, you know, I think eventually we're just going to have to get to a point where we're going to have to say, okay, you know, we're going to go to Daytona. And, you know, Daytona in February is usually pretty nice down there. You know, a few hit or misses here and there. But we need to go out to the West Coast. We need to get out there to California, Las Vegas, Phoenix, and places like that, which, you know, it, it, it's naturally dry out there at this time of the year. And it's dry most of the year when you go. But regardless of that fact, the weather is much nicer out there. Plus, it gives you a break on the East Coast before you start that East Coast swing back again and maybe bring Atlanta back in, um, you know, after you go to the West Coast and then run up to Martinsville and beyond there. And I think that's, you know, could potentially help you know, Atlanta Motor Speedway. And Stephen, also, you've been around the sport for a, a number number of years like like I have. Used to here at Atlanta Motor Speedway, I don't know if you've ever been, used to, I mean, the uh, traffic was just, I mean, it was just hectic getting in and out. And uh, the Georgia DOT and everybody, they've they've got a four-lane in. Uh, there's, there's multiple ways to get in and out to hit I-75 to get back to your hotel or get out of there. And I think that has helped a lot of people, you know, they didn't really want to come to Atlanta Motor Speedway because of the trying to get in and out of that track, Stephen. But uh, I don't know, we can we can talk a little bit about that later. But right now, I want to go ahead and bring on our guest, uh, owner of the number 52 uh, Chevrolet Camaro in the NASCAR Xfinity Series, Mr. Jimmy Beans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Let's get ready to rumble! Good evening, Mr. Means. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Uh, I'm going to hand you over to uh, SpeedwayDigest.com, Mr. Stephen Wilson. I'm my expert analyst, and I'll have a couple of questions before we let you go. But, Jimmy, thanks for taking time to come on the show, buddy. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Jimmy, I appreciate you taking the time to come on here tonight. You've been around this sport for quite some time, and you've you've worked in multiple different series across, you know, uh, between the Xfinity Series, Monster Energy Series, and uh, and with a lot of different drivers over top of your on your career. Plus, you know, you've driven in uh, multiple races. What aspect of the sport do you see right now that has changed that we may need to change back to recapture some of the lost fans? I really can't answer that. I just think, you know, the uh, uh, the old-timers and the guys that like high-performance cars and all that, uh, that's what brought people to the racetrack to see their brand win. But now, you know, you know, it's just different. There's no there's, there's no enthusiasm about seeing the new car makes or what's coming, at least on my part. And I think, the, you know, the kids are the same way. I don't care what comes out in the new manufacturer-wise or whatever. Uh, you know, and now there's just too much electronic stuff out there that the kids are into that uh, they just don't have any any interest in, in in the racing. I just don't understand. You know, I don't know why, but I um, mean, it's still good racing at times. But uh, I don't know what we need to do to bring them back. I just, you know, I think we I think we're ruled to death. But you know, we I think we got rule book for a rule book to try to interpret stuff. It's just. We got way so sophisticated on our, you know, on our engineering and, and the electronics that's in the sport. It's just, you know, it's just got so expensive. So 
for us to do it. And I just don't know, you know, what to say about bringing fans back. I just don't. Jimmy, I mean, you just talked just a little bit about the expense of the sport. For you as as an owner in the sport and, you know, have seen this from both sides of the fence of, you know, being an owner and a driver and, you know, multiple different facets of the sport, What what is the hardest thing for you guys to go up against? I know, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a couple affiliate teams down in the Xfinity Series these days, but aside from that, what is your biggest, what do you feel that your biggest obstacle is? Well, right now, you know, we've they've implemented that we run these um, composite <clears throat> bodies, and and then we have to go to NASCAR's tech center to get them measured, uh, and we spend so much time, you know, on the road to get these, and we're, you know, and it's it's doubly hard for people, you know, to live two or three or four hundred miles away from Charlotte that race to get their cars inspected. So it's just, you know, we spend so much time on the road. To get these things, you know, where they'll pass tech, and and that that, that is our biggest race is is getting these things to pass tech. So when we get to the racetrack, that we don't have to worry about uh, not being able to to get on the racetrack because we're fixing something that's wrong. So we constantly, you know, we take two at a time sometimes to the tech center. Just you know, getting this stuff. I mean, it may be better after we get them all changed over, but uh, it's certainly not looking like it right now. This year you signed on David Starr, who has um, been in the Xfinity Series for quite some time, and prior to that, the Pippa World Truck Series. Um, what is he bringing to the team, especially in his veteran status that you guys are learning from? Well, I mean, he's got some stability, you know, because he's been doing this quite a while. He's, you know, he knows how to take care of the equipment, and he's, you know, he's a proven race winner in the in the Truck Series, uh, and, he, and he knows basically what he needs in a race car. And we don't chase things that are, you know, are, that are not there. Uh, if what then something that you would face, you know, with a rookie driver, he just he doesn't understand the car and really doesn't know what it's doing. You know, back in a few years ago, we used to run a uh, rent a car out, and I had a veteran driver in the name of Brad Teague, and I would get Brad to go out and shake the other car down and put a lap up, and then I tell the driver, okay. When you run as fast as Brad, then we'll work on the car. We never had to work on the car. So, you know, which means what I'm getting out to is we don't have to chase something that's not there because they really don't know. So you put somebody in that knows, then he makes your job a lot easier. And that's what David does for us. Jimmy, I appreciate you taking the time. I'm going to let you uh, talk to Tim here. I'm sure he's got a couple questions for you, and I don't want to take them all away. But good luck throughout the rest of the NASCAR Xfinity season here in 2018. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Jimmy, uh, just want to get your thoughts on the on the new Hawkeye station that NASCAR has for uh, the for the inspections. You know, as far as it was back in the day, you had you had nothing like that. And which now, just to sort of let our fans know, this new Hawkeye deal when they push the car up in there, there's curtains that come down, you can't see nothing. They check. I don't forget what how many points on the car. You mentioned the new composite body. It's, do you think NASCAR is getting too technical as far as from way it was back when you raced? Oh, well, you, know, you don't want to get me started, but but absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we ran this one composite body three times last year. That was first implemented, and we it fit all the templates and past tech and everything like that. You push it in that darn uh, I call it dark shadows room, but uh, you know it's got all that laser crap in there, and it. And it and it's it doesn't pass, so I think I don't think it's very repeatable. I think they've got issues with it, especially on on our side with the composite bodies. You know, we mandate we got to buy these parts, and they're pre-made and pre-drilled and pre-notched. They got interlocking notches they go in, so I mean we can't manipulate it in any way. We just bolt it up the way it is, and it doesn't pass. So I think we got problems. I think we're using too much sophistication on on our side. I mean, you know, you, it may be okay for the guys who got affiliation with the Cup teams. Where they, could, I think, several of those big teams already have their own Hawkeye system, so it's hard to compete against that. So, no, I don't think we're going in the right direction with it. They promised it'd be cheaper for us for these composite cars, but so far, uh, I, I don't think so. Right, and uh, Jimmy, there's been a lot of talk. I know uh, 
I was over at Atlanta Motor Speedway also. There was a little, been a lot of talk, and I know I'm probably probably beating a dead dog, but Atlanta Motor Speedway has not been repaved in 21 or 22 years, and you've raced on it back on the old configuration and the new configuration. Do you think the drivers need to have a say-so in whether that track should be repaved? Like we, like Stephen and I talked about earlier, the weepers were not as bad as what NASCAR thought it was going to be as far as getting the track dried. What do you think NASCAR should do about Atlanta Motor Speedway? Well, I mean, the, I think the drivers basically won't leave it alone because it puts the driver, you know, puts the driver back in control rather than uh, repave it. Then you know, it's going you know, to have a lot of grip and it's going to be faster. But then you've seen when it's faster, you don't necessarily have a better race. So, other than you know the weepers and taking a while to drive the track, you know, I don't think it should be paved. Yes, sir. And my final question, uh, uh, Jimmy, I know your time is limited, but uh, you made your Cup Series debut in 1976 at Daytona, driving for Bill Gray. Can you talk a little bit about that first time getting behind that Cup wheel there at Daytona? Well, actually, it was my car. The only reason Bill Gray was listed as the owner is because I didn't have to pay for the license. He he paid for the owner license, so <laughs> it wouldn't have to come out of my pocket. So, actually, it was, it was my car. Uh, and the only car time I've driven a car for somebody else, I think I drove uh, Hendrick's car once. I drove one time from Dunleavy. There might have been a time when I crashed my car, but other. So always been my equipment. But it was just you know we we were fortunate that we ran a couple of races in Atlanta. Sports. I don't think it was. I think it was some kind of outlaw race that they had there. That was. But you know Neil Bonnet ran and uh, uh, Brad T, Billy McGinnis, a lot of sports and drivers of that time ran that race so I was fortunate enough to get some experience in those two on those two races and I ran Charlotte with the sportsman division and so when I got to t- Daytona and, and you know I'd already you know I'd been to t- uh, Daytona too in the in the, in the, in the back then the Permatex race so you know it wasn't necessarily all that eye-opening because you know like I said we'd run a couple of races at uh, uh, Daytona and Talladega but the biggest thing was eye-opening that is in I believe it was the 125 race that I ran in AJ Foyt and that that was more enlightening than anything else because I was scared to death. But I didn't spin him out or nothing. I, I hit him square, you know. But yeah, I was scared, so I just ran in the back of AJ for it. So the but sports come a long, yeah. The sports come a long way, hadn't it, Jimmy? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, we didn't have anything back then, but I guess we made it. You know, we were able to pay the bills, and you know. It was, now it just takes, I mean, it takes three or four times, five times as much to do this as it did back then. I guess it takes ten times as much because, I mean, we can buy stuff out of the junkyard, build a car from a junkyard frame and, and buy, buy, buy a short block from Chevrolet Place and go race it, you know. But now it's just, you know, everything's there is just strictly racing. Yeah. And, Jimmy, you had, um, I said that was, my, that was my final question. If I can, I'd like to ask one more. You went from uh from driving over to a car owner side of it, was that a lot different when you come over to the car owner as far as driving, or would you rather have let's you know like you said, race somebody else's equipment and stay driving? Well, like I said, I was always my own my owner. I just quit driving, so <laughs> it was time for me to quit. You know, there's, you know, the, you know, I saw a couple of buddies uh, die, and uh, and it was getting so difficult to do because there was only one, one other independent at the time. Dave Marcus and we were we were basically the only ones that didn't have sponsored you know cars and we were kind of just racing each other. And earlier you know in the career we had fifteen or twenty of us that raced. You know we would you know there'd be some pride in being the best of our, our of our group. So uh, it, it, was, it was time. I haven't you know really regretted it. There's times I miss it, but it was you know with me being the owner and the driver and having to do it responsible for everything you know it just got pretty tough to do i bet it did jimmy and again i want to thank you for taking time to come on and i want to let you thank your sponsors anybody that has helped you along the way back when you were driving and anybody that's helped you along the way now when you had joey gase and now you got david Starr. you got the floor thank whoever you want to but you know that guy that does your introduction thing on there on your radio station Get ready to inter- rumble. You know he makes a million. He makes a million and a half dollars every time he says that. I read well, I that wonder, about him. I wonder yeah. if I could get that every time I played it for him. 
<laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. Now, I've been fortunate, you know, to be able to survive. I've been doing this. I've been – I started driving when I was 20 years old. So, you know, I was involved three or four years before I started driving. So I must, I've probably been doing this 50-something years. And there's a lot of people through the – you know, through that, that time that's helped me. There's a lot of them's come and gone that, uh, that you know, that wouldn't be here without them. And, uh, you know, we got uh, David Sign on and we got Whataburger this year. For uh, I think maybe fifteen or twenty races, and he's got a lot of individual people that uh, support him, and hopefully that we can have a decent year and uh, finish at least as good as we did last year in the points. So looking forward to it. Like I said, David's a pleasure to work work with, and uh, just we're actually the truck left this evening for for Vegas, so we we got that three uh, race stretch out there. We go to Vegas, Phoenix, California, and hopefully we have some good luck. Yes, sir, and. I- Jimmy Means, thank you very much for what you have done for the sport of NASCAR, and thank you very much for what you continue to do for the sport of NASCAR. Y'all be safe going to Vegas, and we'd look forward to having you back on the show at a later date, if that's fine with you. Not a problem. We're glad to do it. All right, Jimmy, thank you very much. Bud, y'all be safe going to Las Vegas, and good All luck right. out there. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Right, bye-bye. You're welcome, Jimmy. All right, Stephen, that was Jimmy Means there. I could have probably talked to him for the whole show. I I could tell you, you wanted to hand him over to me because you could have talked to him for the whole show too. I just I had so many questions in the back of my head. I wanted to really sort of go back and talk about back when he was around and all the people that he really raced around. But I don't think we'd have had time to. But he's 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 paved the way for a lot of stuff in NASCAR. Yeah, I mean, that's why I kind of asked some of the questions that I did. I felt like, you know, he, he's got a good handle on where NASCAR was and where NASCAR has been and now where they're going to eventually. Um, you know, he him as a driver, him as an owner, it, it brings a lot of perspective into, you know, the 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 um, the conversation. Um, you know, whereas some people that may not have been around the sport for as long or may not have done, a, you know, one thing over the other because, I mean, he's – He's worked on multiple different facets of the sport. He's been behind the car. He's worked with teams. He's been, you know, on the crew. I mean, you know, it's everything that he can do or has done in the sport kind of gives him the perspective sometimes. Yeah, and just to uh, just to throw this out, I was I wanted to ask Jimmy this question, but uh, I had it jotted down. And when he said he's lost a lot of friends and all that back in the day. Uh, he had chosen to skip two races and let Bobby Hillen Jr. get in the car after J.D. McDuffie was involved in a fatal crash. And I'm pretty sure that was one that he was talking about, relinquished ride to Mike Wallace and all that back in the day. And the just to let some of our younger listeners know, forward of racing is still dangerous, but it's not near as dangerous as it was back when Jimmy Means raced. Jimmy Means, your Bobby Hillen Jr., your uh, – uh, there's so many. Mike Wallace. There were so many that raced back then when it was very, very, very dangerous. Even before we had, before NASCAR implemented the safer wall, before they implemented the Hans device, and I think they added. I don't want to get off into the rule book, but they probably added uh, a roll bar here and a roll bar there to put that driver in that cocoon. Now, I know a few years ago they moved the driver from right up against the driver's door. They moved him a little bit more center. There's so much NASCAR has done far as seeing what these guys did back in the day with Jimmy Means, J.D. McDuffie, and all that. It's come a long way. Yeah, I mean, every every accident that NASCAR has had has improved safety one way or the other. We've, As you've talked about, the greenhouses are now larger, they're wider, they're taller. The, the drivers sit in compression, uh, compression uh, seats that are form-fitted to their body. There's been multiple advancements over the year with adding roll bars to different places to keep that uh, greenhouse area from crushing in on itself, especially during a flip or, you know, when it lands on its roof or something like that. Um, you know, they, they've done, you know, every time there's an accident, unfortunately, you know, we see improvement. But NASCAR always continues to improve no matter what the fact is. I mean, you know, safer barriers were something that started coming out, and it really wasn't until after the Dale Earnhardt Sr. crash that every track just began putting them in. And, you know, it really started to be mandated that they get these in. And, I'm, you know, you look at, um, you know, some of the areas of tracks where don't have 
uh, you know, those safer barriers or even just a couple of years ago when Kyle Busch uh, hit the wall out there during an Xfinity Series race at Daytona in an area that didn't have it. And, I mean, it really hurt him. And the next, before they came back to the next race, they were putting in these safer barriers. So, I mean, it's usually an accident. It's usually an incident. And sometimes it's, unfortunately, that death that moves the bar forward or just moves the needle just a little bit more as far as safety. And, you know, nothing I say, and no matter what we do, I always continue to say that NASCAR is, or racing in general, no matter what form of racing you're into or participate in, is inherently dangerous. And if it can happen, it will happen. Exactly, Stephen. And I think we've discussed this a couple of times before. Just to add to what you were talking about, about the safer barrier and all this stuff that has happened. Uh, I've heard a lot of talk on social media. I know you've seen it. I've seen it. A lot of people's come up to me and asked me about it. Like at Daytona and Talladega, you got the grass that's in the trove. And back in the 80s, in turn one and two, where that asphalt is here at Talladega, that was grass. Remember Rusty Wallace in the number two Miller Light? He flipped there. And on the backstretch, it used to be grass, and now it's all asphalt. Do you think NASCAR needs to look at far as that trial at Daytona and Talladega or where have you, California, wherever the grass is, do you think that they need to, they did, need to do away with the grass, or you think, I mean, you know, just to sort of throw that out there, I want to get your opinion on that. I don't think they need to do away with the grass. I think the grass is fine. Well, I mean, if you were to ask the drivers, the drivers have been, you know, Denny Hamlin has said something about the grass on multiple different occasions. If I remember correctly, uh, Kyle Busch has also done so. And, you know, those are pretty two pretty prominent drivers at this point have said something about it. Uh, you know, there's other, there's other drivers out there that have brought it up in the conversation or has been brought up in the conversation in various different ways out there. But, you know, at the end of the day, I mean... You know, it's not just the grass. I mean, you look back 20, 30 years ago uh, when these cars were not pinned down to the asphalt on the track where they didn't have valences or they didn't have the splitters or they didn't have the various things that we've introduced in over the years. Those cars never, I mean, yes, sure, they, they got around, they, they flipped, they wrecked, you know, uh, but you know, those, these cars now are pinned down as much as they can to the asphalt. And between valences or splitters or whatever you want to call them on the front of the cars that have been introduced time and time again or have been modified multiple different times over the last couple of years, it's a product of multiple different things. You can't just blame the grass. You have to blame, uh, you know, there's blame to in many different facets of this, and I think it just is going to come down to the fact, do you want to make the risk, and teams have said yes, that I'm going to pin these cars down as far as I can to the asphalt, and I'm going to take the risk of, a, of potentially going across a grass infield and having that splitter or valence or you know whatever we want to call them today um, dig into the ground and potentially cause more of an issue. So I think that they've taken that on, and they feel like it's an acceptable risk, but it's not all the grass itself. Sure, I, you know, if the grass wasn't there, it would probably prevent some of this, um, you know, for the damage on the cars. But at the end of the day, we have grass. Grass in some of these areas work well where, you know, just paving over an entire infield wouldn't work out. Well, yeah. I mean, and, you know, Stephen, I got the, I got the number one answer to that question. Don't end up down there in the damn grass in the first place. Well, that's true, too, you know. <laughs> I figured it out. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, they, you, you, you know, and unfortunately, it's not always the drivers that, you know, are in control of this. You know, they, we've seen that drivers have been pushed down into those areas several different times. And I think, you know, yeah, you know, you're, 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 um, you, you should try and stay out of the grass as much as possible. But again, it's racing. If it can happen, it will happen. You said it on multiple occasions, Stephen. Exactly. Stephen, we're headed out to Las Vegas, going on the West Coast swing. Uh, got a triple header. We got the trucks Friday night, the next Fendi, then the Cup Sunday. What do you think we need to far, need to look at as far as the new? I, I well, let me let me back up. The Chevrolet's got their butts whooped at Atlanta Motor Speedway. 
I mean, they took a butt whooping with that new Camaro. Now we're going out to Vegas, which is a little bit different track as far as the uh, uh, the way it's made. And the Fords are really looking good. Kevin Harvick, you know, won there at, at Atlanta. What do you think we need to look for as far as the Chevrolets going out to the West Coast, especially Las Vegas Motor Speedway? Um, you know, I think this is where we're going to see whether this new configuration on this body that Chevrolet has introduced. Um, you know, I, I, I think we've got to give it, you know, some time. I, I'm sure a lot of people look back to 2017 when Toyota put this brand new car on the racetrack and they brought up the 2018 Camry in 2017. And every time you turned around, Martin Truex Jr. was winning a race. He was winning a, you know, a stage. He ended up winning the championship at the end of the day. And I think a lot of people may be pinning their their thoughts or, you know, their opinions on that, you know, an introduction of a brand new race car is immediately means success. Well, you know, there's 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 a lot of difference between Toyota and, and General Motors. Toyota has spent money. And they spend a lot of money, not only to get the best drivers, but the best equipment, but uh, the engineering, the factory support behind them. And I'm not trying to discount GM or Ford by any means, because both of them put a lot of money into the sport and engineering, testing, building new race cars, um, putting together, you know, tech centers and simulators and you know everything that needs to happen to put these race cars on on the racetrack but when it comes to toyota toyota it, it has put i would probably arguably say some of the most money into this sport over the last 10 years or so and that you know and that and, and that kind of where success is is that you know the the old adage is ago you know the old saying they say um you know how fast you want to go depends on how much money that you spend, and Toyota does this. Exactly, Steve. I mean, it's like if you want to go over here and buy a hot dog or you want to go over here and buy your steak, you're not going to get that steak for the price of that hot dog. That's just just like you said, Toyota has sunk a ton of money into racing development in NASCAR. A lot, Steve. And, um, uh, I want to ask you this question, Stephen. We, uh, you listen to the scanner. I listen to the scanner a lot. Uh, at Daytona, we never had talking about this new air gun. Uh, we never had many people complaining about the new air gun. But here at Atlanta, we had some teams complaining about, you know, it wouldn't work, it failed, it jammed, it wasn't going reverse, wasn't going forward. You think, well, just to sort of let everybody know, uh, NASCAR has, has implemented this air gun for the tire changers to be mandatory because teams were spending up in big money just for an air gun. Do you think some of these teams might be talking about that to try to persuade NASCAR to go back to the old way, or do you think they're actually having issues with the, with the air gun? Well, you know, a lot of these teams were jumping up and down to NASCAR, telling NASCAR they needed to uh, you know, either rule across on these air guns or do something to make it a more level playing field because you had teams out there that were building uh, designer guns basically to go out and change tires. And, you know, these guns were getting up into the five digits and, mm-hmm. and higher. I mean, the, these were very expensive guns that they were developing, they were developing on their own, they were developing with outside parties, and, you know, these teams finally, they were, teams got together, and drivers got together, and everybody got together and said, well, we need some kind of ruling on these guns, so the ruling is, is that NASCAR uh, got a fleet of guns, uh, they lease them out on the weekends for about $900 of a gun, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, the teams got what they wished for. Uh, now, you know, in saying so, um, you know, yes, there has to be some kind of ownership into this. If NASCAR is going to leak the guns out, if they're going to work with the designers of these guns, um, three or four in a race is, um, uh, you know, is a little bit unheard of. And we're really getting to a point where that 
shouldn't be occurring. Uh, one or two, I think, would be acceptable, but three or four is not going to be acceptable by any means. And, you know, I think if we give NASCAR and the manufacturer another week or two and we're still having these same problems that three or four guns in a race are failing, I think it may be time to revisit uh, this issue. But right now, um, I, I, I do believe that we could probably let them work through these problems and see where they go. But if it goes on more than, I think, a week or two or three, you know, by the time we get back from the West Coast, I think that's when we might need to start addressing it. Stephen, I want to... I want to change gears if I can a second. I know we're coming up here at the top of the hour, and we're going to have to get out of here. But I want to, I want to ask you this. Uh, I want to go back to where NASCAR used to have uh, 42 cars, a 42-car field. And then they decided to go down to a 40-car field. Okay, we had uh, 36 cars show up this past weekend for the 59th Annual Foes of Honor Quick, Quick Trip 500 at Atlanta Motor Speedway. With that being said, we're dwindling down. Uh, you know, they've, they've, uh, NASCAR puts out the pit stall assignments. They block off a certain pit stall for uh, the scoring and timing, and they'll take away either from the front end or the back end. Like I said, there were 36 cars there. Whoever showed up was going to make the field, whether or not, you know, whatever happened. Do you think? NASCAR needs to look at this at a, a certain way, and like I, you know, like you said, you were no, you're, you're no engineer, and I'm no business guy. What do you think NASCAR needs to do as far as looking at this to get that full 40 car field back? I mean, because I don't want to say next year we're going to end up down to 33. You know, I just don't want to see that happen. Well, there's no incentive for anybody to show up and race anymore uh, when 85, 90 percent of the purse is is delegated to the 35 cars uh, or 36 cars, excuse me, that have a charter. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no competition. I mean, you know, when you, when you're going out there and you're racing for, you know, five or 10% of a total overall purse and purses are, you know, four, six, $7 million, whatever the case they may be. um, And you've only got, you know, let's just say four or $500,000 sitting in there for four cars um, at the back of the field. Um, you know, that there's not really a lot of incentive for them to go out there and race anymore, or bring cars to the racetrack anymore. Um, you know, the Daytona 500 is, is, is probably a better, is probably that off race because you can finish dead last in that race and still bring home four or $500,000 all by yourself. Um, right. you know, the winner taking home a million and a half, million and three quarters. Um, but you know, when you start looking outside of those events, the purse really just dwindles down to a point that, you know, when you're, when you've got to spend, you know, $2,500, $3,000 for a set of tires, you've got 11 sets of tires on it, on, on it just a race day, another five to seven sets for practice and qualifying. I mean, you're thirty five, forty thousand dollars in the hole uh, just on race day alone for tires. And then you got to get the car to the track and all the other things, hotel and everything that goes along with it, pay your driver. Um, build a car or if you know you wrecked a car or rebuild a car if you wrecked a car you've got to lease an engine everything else um there's just you know this charter system has just made no incentive and you know am i trying to incentivize somebody to come out there and race you know 36 37 38 39 40th every week no i'm not but mm. i think you know it, you know the charter has really just locked the door on some of these teams or you know even somebody sitting out there that's thinking, you know, Hey, you know, I've done a good job in the Xfinity series, or I've done a good job in the camper Rail truck series. And I think I'm ready to move up, but you know, I'm not going to move up and spend a, you know, $400,000 on a race car to go out there and get, you know, 50 or $60,000 because I don't have a charter. And, you know, then I've got expenses to pay out of that. You know, I, I think, you know, we've just not incentivized them enough. Um, I think we do need to go back. Um, and just strip these charters away because they've not added value. In fact, this year, across all of the teams in NASCAR, their values went down, and that's not what this was, um, you know, promised or advertised as, that, you know, these charters would increase value in a team. It would give them something tangible in a team. But, you know, the teams overall, um, they've gone down. Their, Their net worth has gone down in the last season or so. So I, I think, you know, getting rid of the charters would probably be 
be a good first step. I think devising a brand new system that incentivizes people to come out um, and not run that 35th, 36th, 37th, 38th, 40th, you know, whatever it case be. But if there are those cars out there and somebody has to finish last, whether it's Jimmy Johnson or whether it's, you know, whoever that brings a car to the racetrack, somebody has to finish last. But, you know, the last place finisher, if let's just say Jimmy Johnson were to, you know, finish last in the race, he may make one hundred and twenty or one hundred and fifty thousand dollars because he's got a charter, but somebody else with that charter may only make fifty thousand dollars. So we've not incentivized this enough, and we've not got enough equitable distribution across, you know, anybody that may show up. Um, and I think it just makes it just a little bit hard for anybody to invest in these series at this time. And Stephen, I'm gonna go there. Uh, I'm gonna throw some gas on the fire. You correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Gentleman by the name of Ron Coffin used to be with Michael Walsh Racing. He's the one that got, was it the RTA or was it the charter stuff? Did all that come through with uh, that gentleman? Did all that start with him or was there more involved about that, with uh, these charters and RTA? Yeah, so, I mean, he, he's been very much the RTA. Rob Kaufman has uh, been, you know, in this series for a couple number of years. He's been with Michael Walter now. He's got a partial ownership, a very minority ownership over there, and some uh, some interdealing workings with Chip Ganassi Racing now. Um, you know, this guy is a financial guy. He's, you know, sure, he's a car guy, he's a collector. You know, there's a lot of things you can say about him on the car side, but at the end of the day, he's not a racer. He, he's a financial guy, and his, his job, I feel, has always been to get the most value out of a team as possible. And, and the charter system was, I guess, his way, you know, of devising a system that would increase his value in the product he's buying into. And while, you know, it's a great theory on paper, it never seems to pan out in real life. And you know that racing is, you know, a very expensive sport in the first place. Um, if you want to make, you know, a small fortune in racing, you need to start with a large fortune. And there's just no way to increase a value in a race team that is going to make it equitable. And especially from a financial perspective, it, it's a losing proposition in most cases. That's why you see, uh, you know, Jack Roush, who owns an engineering, you know, they make car parts and engineering parts and things like that. You've got Penske and uh, Hendricks. Both of those guys own hundreds of dealerships cumulatively. They're making a lot of their money outside of the sport and reinvesting it back into the sport, not this money in the sport and get out. And I think that, you know, the perspective that Rob Kaufman has is that he's trying to, to increase his value in the sport to get out. But you just it doesn't work like that. It's never worked like that. And that's why these teams fold every single day is because it's a very expensive sport to be in. Amen, Stephen. I didn't want to go there, but I want to get your perspective, and I want to let our listeners know exactly what's going on, the gentleman that implemented all this with NASCAR. And I don't really understand. It's sort of like an insurance policy, Stephen. I guess that's the way I've sort of uh, put it in my head to sort of get it. You you got that insurance policy where if you go to the track, you're in – that race if you're if you have a chartered car now if you don't have that chartered car you got to race your way in but what happens say uh say john doe has a chartered car well he wants to get out of racing out he wants to sell his charter how does that go to do they like do they like put that charter on an auction block or is it first come first serve or whoever knows about it you know like hey i want it or do you have to give the whole sanction not the sanctioning body but the whole group of teams that might want that charter ultimately it just comes down to nascar either approving or denying the sale of the charter or transfer of the charter um you know that that has um you know we've seen that with teams that have two cars but three charters um and and they select to sell that third charter off or they lease that third charter off and you can only do that one time for one season, and then you either have to take that charter and put a car back underneath that charter, or you need to sell that charter. Ultimately, it just comes down to NASCAR itself on improving this. But, yeah, I mean, there's multiple different ways 
in which this charter could be exchanged. It can be exchanged either through a leasing agreement, through a straight-up sale, um, through a private sale. I mean, you know, these things move around. I mean, they, they are a tangible item. They're a tangible item that they can move physically or, or say physically, but, you know, the car is the physical, you know, portion of this. And that locks them into the race and increases some kind of payout to them as a team. Um, so, you know, it, there's no standard right now that, you know, oh, it has to go up for auction or, oh, you can only do it through private sale or, oh, you can only move it between whatever, you know. Um, NASCAR has left a little bit of that up to the teams and how they wish to dictate either the sale or lease of their charter. Okay. Let me ask you one more question, and I'm not trying to get real technical and stuff, but I want to ask this. Okay, say uh, Anne Marie Wilson owns a charter for the number 199 car, and she wants to sell it to Suzanne Despain. How much is that charter worth for Suzanne to buy it? For Anne Marie to sell it, is there a set price? I mean, how do they go about how much these charters go for, Stephen? Um, or is it? I mean, you know, or is it just what whatever willing, you want? I mean, it's based on what you're willing to pay for it. Um, you know, if a team thinks that a charter is worth a million dollars and tries to sell it for a million dollars, and somebody buys it for a million dollars, then the charter's worth a million dollars. But if I, as a team, say, well, I have a charter, I'm only going to sell it for $50,000, while somebody else is selling it for a million dollars, and they buy my $50,000 charter over your million-dollar charter, then the charter's only worth $50,000. I mean, really, it just comes down to the matter of what somebody is willing to pay for it. And some of these teams that are more flush with cash and need a charter, such as, you know, Ryan Blading needed one over at Penske Motorsports this year, or Penske Racing, I'm sorry, um, you know, they have a little bit more money to play for, uh, play with. They can probably outbid somebody else that may be looking at that charter, or they can maybe strike that deal with somebody that has that charter um, on a private deal and, you know, pay, you know, whatever the case that they work out. So, I mean, it really just comes down to it's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. Okay, I got you, bud. So I, I have I have been wondering that. I have been wondering that. So you could basically, you could basically name your price. Oh yeah, sure. I mean that's you know that's what it comes down to. You know, if if you're willing to pay for it, or you're willing to pay the price that I asked for, it, then that's what it's worth. But if you're not, then you know, you know, every year there's usually typically leases that are up. Um, and can be moved around or leases that are bought or, you know, other charters that are sold. I mean, you know, there's lots of different things that go on within this. Stephen, we could talk about this all night, but I'm glad we got that out there. I wanted, I wanted to sort of get your perspective on that, too, and sort of let our listeners know. But, Steve, we're coming up here on top of the hour. Uh, let everybody know the schedule for this weekend at Las Vegas North Speedway. I do not have it up. I still hadn't unpacked. I got my suitcase laying up here with dirty clothes, and it. Suzanne's going to kill me. <laughs> well, that's okay. Um, you know, there's there's three days of racing that's going to occur this weekend that, out there at um, Las Vegas Motor Speedway. This is going to be their first of of two double, triple headers this this year. This, they're they're on the circuit twice this year after moving the race away from uh, oh, let's see, uh, where New Hampshire? That's where it was. But anyways, right. you know. Uh, yeah, so so Friday we've got uh, NASCAR Monster Energy Cup Series qualifying at 7:15, and uh, this is all Eastern Time. Uh, sorry, but 6:05 is NASCAR Camper World Truck Series qualifying. Uh, Nine o'clock Eastern Time, the Stratosphere 200 NASCAR Camper World Truck Series race, 134 laps, 201 miles for them. Then going over here to Sunday, we have the NASCAR Xfinity Series qualifying at 105 Eastern with the 4 o'clock NASCAR Xfinity Series Boyd's Gaming 300, 200 laps, 300 miles for them. And then on Sunday, the Pennzoil 400, 3.30 Eastern time, uh, 267 laps, 400.5 miles from NASCAR Monster, over the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series. Stephen, you hit the nail on the head. We got just a few seconds. Thank you very much. Uh, let everybody know where they can follow you at on social media. You can follow us at Speedway Digest 
on Twitter, Facebook.com, forward slash Speedway Digest, and SpeedwayDigest.com. Thanks a lot, Tim. See you, Stephen Wilson. Thank you very much. Talk to you next Tuesday night, my friend.